Hello, my name is Hélène Tigrouja, Professor of Public International Law in Aix-en-Provence, France. Uh, I'm also um, Heuser Global Professor at NYU and a current member of the Human Rights Committee in charge of uh, the implementation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, the topic of uh, today's lecture is um, dedicated to the protection of environment by uh, human rights uh, bodies. So I'm going to address the way uh, regional bodies, but also UN um, treaty bodies, um, uh, do uh, deal with um, the harmful consequences of degradation of environment on uh, the enjoyment, exercise and enjoyment of uh, uh, human rights. Um, it's, um, I'm going to use uh, the words of the former Special Rapporteur on Environment and uh, Human Rights, John Knox, in its, uh, especially in his uh, preliminary report in 2012, when he started his mandate, uh, he underscored, uh, and I'm quoting, the inherently interdependence between the protection of environment and uh, the protection of, uh, of human rights. And 10 years later, the UN General Assembly uh, recognized uh, the right to a clean, healthy, sustainable environment as a human right in a resolution, so adopted in July 2022, uh, adopted by uh, 161 votes in favor, which is a, a huge majority of states in favor of uh, the content of the resolution. And based on this material, indeed, uh, it's clear that the enjoyment of um, uh, enjoyment and exercise of human rights are only possible in a healthy and favorable environment. And at the same time, environmental protection uh, really uh, can benefit from uh, certain human rights, as we will see, for instance, the right to information, the right to public participation in uh, the decision-making process, uh, judicial protection also, uh, but uh, more importantly, I would say, protection of uh, uh, family life, private life, home, or uh, protection of health, protection of well-being, and so on and so forth. So, it's really clear uh, at the international level that we do not have actually two fields, uh, protection of environment on the one side, protection of human rights on the other side, but we have this thought, and I'm also quoting the uh, former special rapporteur, John Knox, we have um, uh, this sort of ecological conscious at the international uh, level, and the topic of this lecture would be to, uh, uh, will be to explore um, based uh, on the on the different treaties, based on the case law, how this uh, ecological conscious actually can be illustrated and uh, works. But we, I mean, that will be my conclusion. We are also going to 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 draw some some limits of this uh, ecological conscious uh, at the at the international level. So this um, lecture will be divided in three parts. Uh, the first uh, will be a, a sort of uh, exploration of uh, international human rights law materials, the treaties, the declarations, but also the jurisprudence, as the legal basis of a direct or indirect uh, right to a healthy environment. 
The second um, moment of, uh, of this lecture will be dedicated to uh, the interpretation provided by uh, human rights bodies. So again, I'm going to use a sort of comparative methodology, uh, the jurisprudence of uh, regional courts, regional organs, but also the jurisprudence of uh, UN treaty bodies. So I'm not going to quote other uh, reports of special rapporteurs, but of course they do a wonderful job when it's about um, uh, protection of environment, uh, climate change, and uh, uh, human rights. And the third step of this lecture would be a sort of uh, conclusion and what's next. Uh, it will be more critical, but uh, in order, of course, to be constructive and to address, uh, I would say, the limitations of uh, this uh, um, um, climate change or pollution litigation before uh, international uh, human rights bodies and what can be done uh, in order to address uh, this um, uh, limitation outside, I would say, the scope of international uh, human rights law. So let's start with uh, the first um, uh, element, the exploration of international human rights law uh, materials. Um, we, we have um, different treaties, different uh, declarations when it's about uh, uh, human rights. And actually, I would say first that um, in uh, what I would call traditional human rights texts, such as the European Convention on Human Rights adopted in 1950, uh, the two covenants uh, adopted at the UN level, so the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, so both adopted in 1966, uh, the American Convention on Human Rights adopted in 1969, and the revised uh, European Social Charter. Um, so in this text, there is no provision on protection of a right to a healthy environment. So these texts are silence when it's about uh, this uh, pollution element, protection of environment, or of course, more um, obviously, uh, the, the question of climate change, because it's a, a more uh, recent uh, question or more recent uh, topic discussed at the international level. So we have this first category of international treaties, uh, human rights treaties, that do not say anything about protection of environment uh, and uh, protection against uh, the harmful consequences of environment. On the other side, there is a category of other uh, instruments uh, that, on the contrary, um, do have a provision on uh, protection of environment. Uh, the most important, I would say, is uh, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and especially with a, a provision, Article 24, which is very important because it, um, it recognizes the right to a healthy environment in favor of peoples. And this concept of peoples has been interpreted by the, the African Commission as um, having a very flexible meaning. So it's not necessarily people at the, uh, at the national level, but it's, uh, it, may be, it may cover, for instance, an indigenous community or any other form of traditional community. So in the African Charter, uh, there is a specific provision on uh, right to healthy environment, but in its collective dimension. 
We have also uh, another important text, uh, protocol, the protocol uh, to the American Convention on, um, on Human Rights. And this protocol was adopted in 1988. Uh, it's the San Salvador Protocol on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And there is a provision, Article 11, in favor of recognition of environment. And, but I will go back to this um, uh, to this provision. Uh, two other uh, instruments at the regional level: the Arab Charter, Article 39, and uh, the uh, ASEAN Declaration, so the Declaration on Human Rights adopted by the ASEAN Organization, so Organization Association of uh, Southeast uh, Asian uh, Nations. And uh, in this declaration adopted in 2012, there is an Article 28 in favor of uh, protection of environment. Maybe I could also add, even if it's really a specific instrument, but I could also add the EU Charter on Fundamental Rights. So we have a provision not exactly in favor of an individual right or collective right uh, on often healthy environment, but we have a provision, so it's uh, uh, Article 37, uh, dealing with uh, um, a sort of policy principle, integration of environmental uh, concerns or preoccupation dimension in EU policy. So it's not really um, um, a, a provision recognizing an individual right or uh, um, a collective right in favor of environment for EU citizens, but it's more a sort of call for action by the EU institutions or by member states of the, of the EU when they implement uh, EU regulations or EU, um, EU policy. So, so I, I mentioned this, but, but, but again, I mean, it's really difficult to consider uh, this EU charter as a uh, uh, a human rights treaty recognizing uh, an individual right in favor of health in, uh, in favor of a healthy environment but it, but it's in terms of policy it, within the EU it's a, it's a quite important um, provision and it's a quite important uh, instrument maybe i could also um, because here uh, the the african charter uh, the Pro the san salvador protocol the arab charter are more general instruments so they they do not uh, focus on a specific category of person but they address uh, and they cover um, individuals and peoples in general at least for the african charter uh, i i should add uh, to this list uh, other um, instruments, but more specific instruments, very important instruments, but more specific instruments, especially uh, the CRC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and I will go back to the jurisprudence of the CRC on climate change. So in CRC, in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, adopted in 1988, Nine, uh, we have a specific provision, Article 28, on the protection of environment for children. And it's very important because when we talk, for instance, about pollution or when we talk about climate change, it's true that we have also, of course, this transgenerational aspect or question. So when we talk about pollution, it's not only uh, the direct and current effect of pollution, but it's also um, something that may have a mid-term effect and, of course, a long-term effect. So it's really important to have 
in CRC, in this Convention on the Rights of the Child, a specific provision on the protection of children to live in a healthy uh, environment. We have also in another specific instrument, uh, the Maputo Protocol, uh, a, a provision on healthy environment. Maputo Protocol is an important protocol at the African level, so it's a regional instrument dealing with uh, protection of women in Africa. So it's a it's a specific but general instrument in favor of women. So it's not a, 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 an instrument um, dealing only with uh, you know violence against women or discrimination against women. It's more general in terms of status of women. And uh, in this instrument, uh, we have this provision of the rights of women to live in a healthy environment. And it's also very important because there are many, many reports and there are many uh, studies um, really um, uh, underlying the role of uh, women uh, in the protection of environment. Uh, they, I mean, it, it, it's really important because both women are vulnerable to harmful consequences of environment. There is a special vulnerability for many reasons, uh, but also they, they may uh, play a very significant role in terms of protection of environment. So it's important uh, not to ignore, but on the contrary, to recognize the special uh, place uh, or the special role women can play when it's about uh, protection of environment and uh, uh, fighting against uh, the uh, degradation of uh, environment. Um, I also would like to add to this uh, list of instruments dealing with environment in a general way or specific way to uh, declarations. So here we are not talking about conventions, we are not talking about uh, binding instruments, but we are talking about declarations that play a very significant role because they may be used in practice by regional courts or also by UN treaty bodies, and I will give some illustration uh, uh, a, bit, uh, a bit later. First, uh, the UN uh, declaration on uh, rights of indigenous peoples adopted in 2007 by the General Assembly, by the UN General Assembly. And in this UN Declaration on Indi the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, there is a provision, Article 29, on the rights of uh, indigenous communities, indigenous people to live in a healthy environment. And this is absolutely critical because uh, I will explain uh, also a bit later um, that uh, especially in the jurisprudence of the African Commission and the jurisprudence of the uh, Inter-American Court, there is a very strong link and very, very narrow link between the protection of environment and the protection of rights of indigenous people, the protection of their land, the, prote the protection of um, their uh, traditional way of living. So it's really in the litigation process, the protection of indigenous people really played uh, this uh, absolutely critical role in terms of recognition of a healthy environment. So uh, this instrument, uh, again, even if not binding, even if it's formally speaking a declaration, uh, really is a, a peace element in this um, 
legal uh, framework in favor of protection of environment and uh, human rights. The other instrument I would like to, to mention is more recent, but still very important. Uh, it's the UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants and Other People Working in Rural Areas. And so it's more recent. It was adopted in 2018. It's not a, a resolution adopted by the General Assembly, but it's a resolution adopted by the UN uh, Human Rights Council. Uh, and, and the text uh, does uh, contend a provision on uh, protection of environment in favor of uh, peasants' communities and in favor of uh, peasants as communities, but also as individuals. It's Article 18. And I mentioned this declaration. Again, it's not a binding instrument. It's a declaration. But I mentioned this because very recently, in a, a, a case uh, um, adopted, by, in a decision adopted by the Human Rights Committee, uh, especially this UN Declaration on the Rights of Peasants was used when dealing with protection of environment, uh, pollution and harmful consequences of pollution on the traditional way of living of uh, uh, peasants, a peasants community. So really, again, I, I mean, it's true that in general, uh, when we talk about legal basis, we prefer to use binding instruments, but uh, um, it's very important not to underestimate um, the interest in terms of uh, litigation process, I would say, and interpretation of, uh, of uh, human rights, the interest of this um, uh, uh, UN uh, declarations 2007 and 2018. I just mentioned uh, that, uh, of course, all the materials I'm going to uh, use and I'm going to quote for this lecture will be also annexed to this, um, uh, to the lecture, so the jurisprudence, but also the, uh, the instrument. Um, the comparative analysis of all these uh, binding and non-binding um, uh, instruments uh, calls for at least, I would say, two um, main, uh, main remarks. Um, uh, the first is that we have a sort of... Uh, we, we do not have a, 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 um, a consistent approach uh, to uh, the status of uh, uh, the right to a healthy environment. In some treaties or in some documents, uh, in some instruments, um, when we, when it's um, uh, when uh, the the right to a healthy environment is mentioned, is it's really worded as a as a right, as an in, individual or collective right, but as a subjective right. So it means that it's, it's a sort of entitlement entitlement for uh, the beneficiary, uh, individual beneficiary, collective beneficiary, and this. Uh, right may be used vis-à-vis, uh, -vis, for instance, a state or a community, public authorities, and so on. So, for instance, in the wording of the African Charter, Article 24, uh, it's really a right, and there's no doubt. And it's important to say this because, um, in general, when it's about uh, right to a healthy environment and when there is a conversation on the potential uh, content of this right and the potential nature of this right, uh, it's sometimes say that, yeah, it, it, we should adopt uh, such a, a right, but it's not a real right. It's a sort of uh, programmatory right, uh, and uh, that's not a, a justiciable right. 
Quite the contrary. I mean, in the jurisprudence of the African Commission, it was really made clear that Article 24 uh, was to be interpreted and was to be understood as a right, as a subjective right, in favor of um, in favor in favor of people. But in other texts, as the Arab Charter, for instance, or uh, as I say, the EU uh, Charter on Fundamental Rights. It's true that the vocabulary is a bit, um, uh, a bit uh, more uh, vague, and uh, it's not clear whether or not uh, it's about a principle, principle of action, or, or real right, as I said, uh, that could be used uh, before a domestic tribunal, or that could be used and, and claimed before an international, uh, an international body. The vocabulary used is. Uh, um, yeah, I would say broader and a, a bit more flexible. So it's uh, it's uh, from a legal point of view, I would say it's difficult to say that here in the Arab Charter or the EU Fundamental uh, Rights uh, Charter, uh, we we really have uh, the clear recognition of an. Um, um, a subjective um, a subjective right. So we have a sort of an inconsistency, uh, even if. We, we, we may find this legal basis in different texts or different uh, treaties. We have this inconsistency in terms of uh, uh, wording uh, uh, the, the, the right, the principle, the principle of action, and, and so on and so forth. There is another element in terms of uh, inconsistency in the, in the recognition in the text and at the international level. It's in terms of uh, right holder. As I said, um, uh, it's quite clear um, when we read uh, the African Charter, and especially Article 24, it's quite clear that the right holder is the collectivity. It's people, and again, uh, people as interpreted by the African Charter. Uh, so it means uh, people uh, synonymous of community, indigenous communities, peasant community, traditional community i mean very flexible interpretation provided by the african by the african commission and endorsed uh, this interpretation was followed and endorsed by the african court on human and people's rights um, there's a question not solved by the african organs uh, and the question that is not solved is whether or not this right would have also an individual dimension. It's true that we do not have jurisprudence, so I'm just raising the question, but I do not have an answer because the African organs have not been uh, sized uh, or, or this question was not uh, lodged um, or raised uh, before the uh, African organs. But on the other side, all the other instruments I mentioned are more... Um, do adopt a more individual-based approach to the rights of a healthy environment. Uh, so, as I said, for the CRC, for instance, it's uh, the right of the child. For the Maputo Protocol, it's the right of woman. Or um, the uh, Pro San Salvador Protocol, it's every person. So it's more uh, an individual approach um, in terms of right holder that is uh, used by um, uh, by the instruments. So, here it's another question I raise. I mean, we do not have a consensus at the international level on the, on the beneficiaries or the right holders. 
um, I, I go back to this uh, um, resolution of the General Assembly I mentioned, so the resolution that was adopted in July 2022 uh, in favor of recognition of a right to a healthy and clean environment. Uh, the resolution from a symbolic point of view, of course, is absolutely critical, uh, but uh, the resolution does not elaborate on the right holders, for instance. So we, it's really something that uh, would need to be addressed by states, by tribunals, by domestic tribunals, by um, international organizations. So now we have at least a document, a resolution of the General Assembly recognizing uh, the right, but it's true that in terms of legal regime, yeah, we have to move and to uh, be, um, uh, uh, to, to elaborate, I would say, a bit more on, on the uh, on the right holder and beneficiaries uh, of um, of this right. So uh, we, we have this uh, non-solved uh, question and I will also say a little bit more on how, uh, concretely speaking and in practice, uh, some international bodies have uh, addressed this question of um, uh, personal scope of the right and right holders. Um, so. We have these instruments, some are silent, so silent, others are more eloquent, but they do not say they are not consistent and uh, they do not adopt uh, the same approach to uh, the right to a, a healthy environment. Um, the, the jurisprudence of um, uh, human rights bodies, especially human rights bodies, uh, monitoring a, a, a silent uh, instrument, I would say, uh, is interesting when we are exploring the legal basis and when we we are searching for uh, the recognition of a right to a healthy environment. Um, and, and it's interesting to see how actually, uh, especially the European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights have, I would say, filled the gap of the ECHR on the one side, uh, the American Convention uh, on Human Rights uh, on the other side, precisely on this question of legal basis uh, for a right to a healthy environment. But we have two methodologies, and I will very briefly expl explain the methodology the individual methodology used by the uh, European Court of Human Rights on the one side, and the more collective approach uh, used by the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights and followed to a certain extent by the Human Rights Committee uh, on the other side. So I, I'm, uh, I, I will try to, to, to explain uh, the, the jurisprudence of uh, these bodies in terms of recognition of a right to a healthy environment and, and despite the silence of the ECHR and other um, uh, human rights treaties. Uh, for the ECHR, the European Court and the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court of, uh, of Human Rights, uh, it's really clear from the jurisprudence of the court that the ECHR does not recognize in itself a right to a healthy environment. And it's constantly uh, recalled by the European Court of Human Rights in its jurisprudence. There are some pending discussions within the Council of Europe, and I will say a word uh, in the conclusive part of this lecture, but uh, the, the, the European Court has really long stressed 
the fact that the ECHR in itself, the uh, 1950 instrument, does not recognize, does not grant a right to a healthy environment. But, and that's also constantly stressed by the European Court of Human Rights, when uh, an activity, for instance, um, is dangerous for uh, environment, or when there is a pollution, and different form of pollution, olfactive pollution or any other form of pollution, this may affect the rights protected by the European, by the European Convention on Human Rights. And in this case, it's clear for the European Court of Human Rights that uh, this type of situation uh, situations fall in the material scope of the European Convention and especially, for instance, may fall under the scope of right to life, Article 2, and I will provide some illustrations, dramatic illustrations, uh, may fall under uh, the material scope of private life, family life, integrity of home, may fall under the scope of property, protection of property, or may fall under the scope of, um, but it's less frequent, uh, protection of judicial guarantee, effective remedy or access to a tribunal. So uh, it means that we, we do not have, again, um, a clear recognition by the European Court of the existence of an autonomous right in favor of a healthy environment, but this right may be captured or may be linked to other rights protected by the European Convention on, um, on Human Rights. So the, the, the court, and I'm using uh, its words, uh, the court uh, talks about uh, adverse effect of pollution. And when they are adverse effects of pollution on the exercise or the enjoyment of the rights protected by the European Convention. In this case, there is, uh, without any hesitation, I would say, a clear uh, applica application of uh, the uh, European Convention on Human Rights um, in, this, um, uh, in this situation. Um, an example, and it's maybe one of the most famous examples in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, is the Lopez Ostra versus Spain case. It was adopted in uh, 1994. Uh, it was a case dealing with uh, operation of wastewater uh, treatment um, plant and uh, the harmful consequences of this activity on the uh, private life, family life, but also integrity of home of, uh, uh, of the applicant. And this was analyzed by the European Court of Human Rights under Article 8, protection of family life, private life, and, uh, and, uh, and home. And it, it was really a very interesting case because it was the first time, or one of the first time, the court accepted to, um, to, to, to address this adverse effect of pollution on the enjoyment and exercise of uh, Article um, Article 8. From this um, Lopez Ostra case, uh, th th there are many, many examples of other rights affected by um, um, pollution or dangerous activities or uh, 
um, use of dangerous uh, uh, or toxic products um, in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, um, I, I will go back a bit later uh, to this uh, dramatic case, for instance, Honor Yildiz versus Turkey. It's a Grand Chamber judgment. It was delivered in 2004. And it was a dramatic case because in this uh, situation, uh, it was a, um, a loss of life. So it was uh, analyzed by the European Court of Human Rights under Article 2, and especially the lack of prevention and protection by public authority uh, authorities of uh, the life of uh, people living in a certain area. Uh, so in this case, of course, it's um, about... Uh, pollution and dangerous activities, but it's also about uh, uh, human dignity and, 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 and life. Uh, other example, for instance, health conditions and um, consequence of, consequences of pollution uh, are on uh, health uh, condition or situation that, that may be captured um, under Article 8, again, private life, family life. Um, as I said, question of property, or but it's again, it's less frequent uh, access to information. So, in this case, when it's about access to environmental information, the European Court of Human Rights does not use uh, the provision of the ECHR dealing with uh, uh, freedom of expression and access to information, Article 10 of the ECHR, but the, the court prefers to use Article 8 again. I mean, it's really a broad provision, private life, family life, and so on. But yeah, the European Court does capture this question of access to information and, and even uh, participatory rights in relation with environment uh, under Article 8 of the uh, European Convention on, on, on Human Rights. So. It means that we, we, we have, again, not in the ECHR, not the recognition of an individual right in favor of healthy environment or directly uh, in favor of a healthy environment, but we have indirectly this connection between some rights protected by the European Convention and harmful consequences, dramatic consequences of dangerous activities, pollution, uh, degradation of environment and so on. The issue of climate change uh, has not been captured or, or addressed uh, by the European Court of Human Rights so far. Uh, there are some pending cases before the court, so let's see how the court uh, would uh, uh, will decide whether or not uh, these pending cases will be declared admissible. I will say a word a bit later on, on, on this uh, uh, litigation process before the court. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, the, 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 the topic of climate change is not, uh, is not uh, addressed uh, so far by, 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 the, by the European Court, but we have some pending um, uh, cases and applications. Uh, so yeah, uh, I, I mean, it, it's going to be addressed uh, either uh, only at the admissibility stage or also on the merits um, in, a, in a period of uh, one or two years by the, uh, by the Strasbourg uh, court. Um, but as we, 
as, as we can see, I mean, the position or the approach to the uh, to these questions by the European Court of Human Rights is really based on individual rights. So it means that, from a procedural point of view, it means that uh, the applicants have to individualize the harmful consequences of um, pollution and so on, on the enjoyment or exercise of their rights. So it's really a very individually based approach to this uh, environment and human rights uh, uh, question, which is slightly different from the inter-American system and uh, African system, and to a certain extent, the uh, position of, um, of the Human Rights Committee. As I said, the position adopted by the Inter-American Court, the African Commission, um, and more recently by the Human Rights Committee is more based on protection of minorities, uh, especially protection of uh, rights of uh, indigenous uh, communities in their environment. And for the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, in many, many judgments, it's clear that there is a strong link between the protection of lands and especially the protection of uh, ancestral territories, the protection of life, and the protection of environment. And there is a strong link because um, uh, indigenous communities have a, a, a very um, um, important and traditional link to their lands. So uh, the, the health and the situation of their lands has have a di direct impact, I would say, on, their, uh, on the protection of their culture, the protection of their traditions, uh, the protection of their life, and also the protection of their dignity. In a case adopted in 2005, the Inter-American Court also say that it's a question of integrity spiritual integrity. So when we talk about pollution and so on, we do not talk only about pollution or climate change or uh, dangerous activities, mining activities and so on. We also, for the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, we also talk about protection of dignity, integrity of the traditions and the culture of indigenous communities. So it's really, when we talked at the beginning of this lecture when we talked about uh, you know interdependence between environment and uh, enjoyment of human rights maybe the, the, the jurisprudence on indigenous communities is the jurisprudence that illustrates I would say the best uh, this uh, relation of interdependence between uh, health and situation of a land and health and situation of an indigenous uh, uh, communities. And, and also the philosophy uh, of the inter-American system and followed by the African uh, Commission and African Court is, is, is different, different from the philosophy of the European uh, Court's jurisprudence. Because the indigenous communities uh, in the inter-American system, as understood in this uh, relation, special relationship to lands and special relationship to um, uh, protection of environment, uh, indigenous communities are really placed um, not at the center of this relation with nature, but they are placed and they are understood as, as, as guardians of, of the integrity of nature and the integrity, integrity of lands and integrity of space and, and, and sea and, and, and so on and so forth. So um, 
nature is not an instrument in favor of the enjoyment of rights of the indigenous communities, but as, as it can be said or as, as it can be drawn from the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, nature and the protection of nature, the protection of environment, uh, is, um, is, is considered by the Inter-American Court, not exactly in itself, but really, again, uh, the, it, it's not instrumental. It's not an instrument. The protection of nature is not seen as an instrument in favor of protecting the rights of indigenous communities. It's more like, uh, a, 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 yeah, I, I would say protection of the nature for itself. And, and yeah, of course, there, there is a, a positive aspect for indigenous communities. So the, 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 the philosophy... Um, uh, um, the philosophies of, of, of the two bodies um, is, is, quite, um, is quite different. And the Inter-American Court used a lot the vocabulary uh, used by indigenous communities when they talk about cosmovision, worldview, uh, and, and their special relationship with, um, 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 with nature and, the different en and their environment. As I said, the position of the Human Rights Committee uh, dealing with uh, the, uh, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is a bit, I would say, a mix between the position of the European Court of Human Rights and the position of the Inter-American uh, Court and the African bodies. Um, in, its general in, in its general command 36 on the right to life, it's true that the Human Rights Committee uh, does mention um, states' obligation to protect environment in relation with right to life. So it's more a sort of individual right approach, very similar to the position of the European Court of, um, uh, of Human Rights. But in practice, in jurisprudence, and especially in its uh, very recent jurisprudence, uh, the Human Rights Committee um, adopted a more collective approach um, of uh, a more collective approach to, to this uh, protection of environment, in, especially in relation to rights of indigenous communities or peasants' community. Uh, so uh, just a couple of cases, uh, for instance, uh, in relation to a peasant community, this uh, aspect was addressed by the Human Rights Committee in a Caceres versus Paraguay case uh, delivered in 2019. And it was a very um, dramatic case of extensive use of pesticides in Paraguay uh, with dramatic consequence, um, especially on the right to life of one person. Um, um, and uh, and uh, dramatic consequences also on the uh, the family life, private life of the peasant community uh, that were uh, that was directly affected by the use of uh, the extensive use of uh, of pesticides. So, for the Human Rights Committee um, regarding the death of um, Mr. Caceres, it was a violation of Article Six of the Covenant, and it was recognized actually by the domestic uh, tribunals of Paraguay. So uh, there was no problem of proof in this case, uh, proof be problem of proof between uh, the use of pesticides and the death of Mr. Caceres. Um, 
but uh, for uh, the other members of the peasant community, uh, the Human Rights Committee also concluded to the violation of uh, two other provisions. Article 17 of the Covenant, dealing with uh, private life, family life, and protection of home. And of course, in this case, and it's very interesting, because it was not really, um, I mean, the, the word home did not capture uh, very well the situation, the concrete and practical situation of uh, the peasant community. So what the committee did is that in order to interpret the situation and to capture uh, the harm suffered by the peasant community, uh, the, the Human Rights Committee did interpret Article 17 in light of the UN Declaration on Peasant, Peasants' Rights, so the declaration adopted in nine, uh, 2018, I mentioned at the, uh, at the outset of, uh, of this lecture. So it's interesting because, as we can see, uh, you know, the concept of home, again, is not very well framed to capture uh, the, the, the concrete and practical uh, harmful consequences of uh, the use of pesticides. So um, it was better for the majority of the committee, for the, for the committee, to uh, use this more recent text in favor of um, in favor of peasants' rights. And more recently, the Human Rights Committee did adopt uh, two other cases, but this uh, this time uh, dealing with um, uh, rights of indigenous communities, uh, and uh, in these cases, uh, it was uh, the, the so the Human Rights Committee uh, did address also the consequences of pollution on uh, the rights of an indigenous community, so using, again, Article 27, but also, and I forgot to say this for Caceres, also using Article 27 of the Covenant. And Article 27 of the Covenant is another very important uh, provision dealing with rights of minorities. Uh, so we do not use in the covenant uh, when it was adopted in, 2000, in, uh, in 1966, we do not use the vocabulary indigenous communities. We use the vocabulary in the covenant of my members of minorities. But 27, Article 27 was used in these um, uh, two uh, cases, so Benito Oliveira versus Paraguay and Billy and others versus Australia, delivered in 2022. We use the harmful consequences of pollution on the one side, climate change on the other side, to address uh, this question of uh, uh, right to cultural identity, especially for an indigenous community. And uh, the Human Rights Committee also extensively used the case law of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So that's why I said that, yeah, in, in, in some cases, uh, the, the, the committee uh, did adopt a more individualistic approach to uh, the consequence of environment on uh, the rights of the covenant, but in other cases, it's more a, a, a collective approach to the right to a health, healthy environment, even if the right is not in itself recognized by um, the covenant. Um, the very, very individual decision, and the only, uh, until now, the only decision, individual decision 
the, the Human Rights Committee did adopt um, in relation with climate change and uh, the rights of the covenant is uh, the Tetiota versus New Zealand case adopted in 2019 dealing with uh, the non-refoulement principle in a situation of claim of climate change. So it was a, a, a case uh, about uh, removal from territory uh, from New Zealand to Kiribati and the claim of the author of the communication before the committee was to say that uh, this removal, this expulsion, would be in breach of the right to life and protection of uh, integrity. Uh, but the majority of the committee uh, in this uh, decision of 2019 uh, said that there was no um, denial of justice in the assessment made by the uh, tri tribunals of New Zealand in, you know, on, on this risk uh, faced by um, uh, Mr. Tetiota uh, in case of uh, of removal. But so, so it, it's more. I mean, th this case is more, uh, as I said, an illustration of the individual approach to the Human Rights Committee. It's also a, a very interesting case because. We, we do not use the, the, the Human Rights Committee does not use the vocabulary of climate refugee, but it opens the door to the use of or to the application of the non refoulement principle in these cases of removal from territory, uh, especially in situation of um, um, climate change uh, consequences uh, on some territories. Here again, I, as I said, it was the, the question of. Uh, uh, the situation of Kiribati and, and in terms of conditions of life uh, and uh, dramatic consequences of uh, the rise of uh, the sea level on uh, Kiribati. But it was a non-violation uh, decision uh, adopted by the, uh, by the Human Rights Committee. So this overview, this tour d'horizon, is really made uh, to um, uh, explain that Despite, I would say, the silence of main or major international human rights uh, treaties, we have some jurisprudence, we have some decisions at the regional levels, at the universal level, uh, dealing with uh, some aspects, some adverse effects, so I'm quoting again the European Court of Human Rights, some adverse effects of pollution, climate change, on um, the uh, enjoyment and exercise of civil and political rights, mainly, sometimes it's also about right to health, but more, um, more uh, frequently uh, dealing with uh, civil and, and, and political rights. So now, second moment of, uh, of this lecture, what is uh, the interpretation. We do not have a consistent interpretation, and, and I will explain uh, what I mean. But what is the interpretation based on this uh, very general overview and not exhaustive overview of the jurisprudence? What is uh, or what are the main trends of the interpretation of the right to a healthy environment? So, what is the content of this um, of this um, of this right? Um, again, despite the silence of the um, of the of the ECHR, the American Convention, the ICCPR, 
we we have some guidelines provided by the decisions of the European Court, the Inter-American Court, the, the Human Rights Committees, the Committee on the Rights of the Child. We have some guidance on the scope uh, of um, what would be uh, this right to a healthy environment if tomorrow uh, we adopt uh, um, a treaty or a protocol uh, recognizing this right to a healthy environment. So we, we have um, some, some yeah, guiding principles of uh, the scope of this right, state's obligation, and also the type of um, legal regime applied by uh, human rights uh, bodies uh, to, this, uh, to this right. Uh, regarding the scope, uh, one of the main questions when we talk about pollution and consequences of pollution or climate change on uh, the enjoyment or exercise of, of human rights uh, is about territorial um, element, territorial dimension or extraterritorial dimension of, uh, of the right of the state's obligation. It's really one of the most complex but also most frequently uh, raised problem uh, when it's about um, um, the application of uh, this right to a healthy uh, environment, so the territorial scope of, um, of the right. And very um, interestingly, this question actually was raised um, by Colombia uh, before the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights in the framework of uh, its uh, advisory jurisdiction. Uh, so it's the advisory opinion uh, uh, 23, Environment and Human Rights. So it's the official title of uh, the advisory opinion. And this opinion was delivered in 2017. So it's interesting because Colombia raised um, um, a series of questions before the court. And one and the first was precisely about the concept of jurisdiction. And the position of Colombia uh, was to say that the concept, the mainly territorial definition of jurisdiction used at the international human rights level was not sufficient, uh, was not satisfactory uh, when it's about environmental uh, consequences, uh, uh, environmental degradation and enjoyment exercise of human rights. So the position of Colombia was to say that in general, in international human rights law, the concept of jurisdiction is mainly territorial, except in very specific situations, military occupation or other uh, situations when a state does exercise an effective control, jurisprudence of the ICG, the International Court of Justice. And the position of Colombia was to say that it's, it's not possible anymore to use this very territorial approach to the implementation of human rights, especially when human rights are harmed by pollution, climate change, pollution and climate change having transboundary um, effects. So uh, there was uh, this um, advisory uh, request, uh, advisory opinion request, was a sort of call by Colombia to change the shift, uh, to, to, to change the paradigm and to shift the paradigm of the concept of um, territory, borders, 
jurisdiction, attribution, and state's responsibility. And the proposal that was made by Colombia was actually to use um, and to, to take from environmental law a specific, con uh, specific con concept, the concept of functional jurisdiction, that would replace this very territorial definition of jurisdiction, this very ter territorial approach to ju jurisdiction used, traditionally used by uh, human, rights, um, human rights bodies. Um, the the Inter-American Court, in its decision of 2017, so in the advisory opinion, environmental, environment and, and human rights, um, partly replied to Colombia. So um, uh, the Inter-American Court did not uh, accept to follow and to use um, and, and to shift I would say its approach, uh, radically uh, its approach to jurisdiction and to use this vocabulary of functional jurisdiction. But in the meantime, uh, the Inter-American Court uh, used uh, and, and, and accepted, accepted to extend a little bit more uh, the condition uh, to establish extraterritorial jurisdiction. So um, the court accepted that the traditional condition to, to establish uh, the extraterritorial jurisdiction of a state should be a bit broadened. And that's what uh, the Inter-American Court did in its advisory opinion uh, uh, 30, uh, 20, 2023 uh, with uh, um, quite uh, flexible, I would say, um, uh, use um, uh, of uh, international law jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, again, in order to extend a little bit or, or to extend uh, the concept of, um, of jurisdiction. And it's important because even if it's an advisory opinion, so it's not binding, even if it's an advisory opinion by a regional body, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, it was uh, this advisory opinion of 2017 was used uh, and followed actually by the CRC, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, in its uh, decisions adopted in uh, 2021 on uh, climate change complaints. So uh, there were a series of climate change complaints brought by children before the CRC, before the Committee on the Rights of the Child, against the couple of states like France, Germany, Turkey, Argentina. And uh, one of the key questions was precisely about states' jurisdiction and whether or not the states uh, have uh, jurisdiction on the situations uh, brought before the CRC. And, the, human, and the, the Committee on the Rights of the Child using the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, say that indeed, even if taken uh, in an isolated way, France, Germany, Argentina, Turkey cannot be uh, you know, attributed uh, the whole uh, phenomenon of uh, climate change, the CRC considered that these states, uh, for the purpose of admissibility, uh, did exercise their extraterritorial jurisdiction over the situation. Um, and, and again, using the jurisprudence of the Inter-American uh, Court of Human Rights. Uh, so it's very interesting because 
this question um, of jurisdiction, extraterritorial jurisdiction, uh, territorial scope of uh, states, uh, obligation, uh, etc., is uh, at stake in the pending cases before the European Court of Human Rights. So let's see how the uh, the, the, Euro the European Court uh, will decide, but in one of the pending case, uh, one of the pending cases, so D'Agostino versus uh, Portugal, plus uh, more than thirty states members of the Council of Europe, uh, one of the key, one of the key questions is about jurisdiction, and whether or not uh, the thirty-two member states of the Council of Europe could be. Uh, considered as exercising their jurisdiction over a situation that occurred on uh, on the territory of Portugal, and it's about fires uh, that occurred in uh, 2017. And the claims made by the applicant is that yes, these states do exercise their, juris their jurisdiction because it's a situation that was created by the lack of a strong policy in against climate change. Uh, so one of the key questions at the admissibility stage, uh, or maybe on the merits, let's see, uh, the court would have to decide is precisely whether or not uh, this situation falls under the jurisdiction of states under Article 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights. So it's really a, a debated question, precisely because we do not have um, a consistent approach to criteria for extraterritorial, extraterritorial jurisdiction and it's really a moving concept especially based on this very recent uh, very recent decision uh, with regard in terms of interpretation with regard to um, uh, personal scope of the right to a healthy environment I will be uh, uh, swift uh, as I said um, except uh, for the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which considers that the right to a healthy environment is an individual uh, right, uh, we have also uh, jurisprudence, uh, decisions by the um, African Commission on Human and People's Rights, Inter-American Court, uh, Human Rights Committee, making this uh, right to a healthy environment a more collective right, or at least with a, a, a very strong uh, collective dimension of, of the right, especially in the cases um, before the, the, the Human Rights Committee. It's not exactly a collective right, but it's a right with a strong, very strong collective dimension in favor of peasants' community or indigenous, um, indigenous communities. Uh, so it means that, again, we do not have a consistent position at the international level regarding the personal scope. And uh, another element that is quite clear is, um, in terms of uh, personal scope, is also that uh, uh, at least the European Convention of Human Rights, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, um, has uh, constantly stressed that the ECHR does not open a sort of axio popularis. So when we talk about individual right, it means again that uh, the claimant. Uh, the uh, the applicant before the European Court really has to explain why and how and the extent of the harms caused uh, to 
their rights, their rights protected by the ECHR. And it's not that, I mean, it's, it's a similar position also adopted by the Human Rights Committee. So uh, human rights organs in general are not in favor in their procedural way of working in favor of axio popularis, except again, for different reasons, uh, the African Charter, which in the text itself also accepts uh, uh, axio, uh, axio popularis. Now on the content, so more the material aspect of the right to a healthy environment. As I said, we have a long list of uh, jurisprudence and uh, international practice Il illustrates, I would say, uh, that the right to a healthy environment means uh, first uh, the right to be uh, protected against uh, pollution and other problems of all kinds. Um, th this is the case of uh, nuclear tests, uh, industri industrial uh, activities that are dangerous for uh, human health, uh, mining activities, pollution of any uh, sort, um, treatment and collection of waste, etc., uh, etc. Et and so we, we have many, many activities that may uh, cause uh, degradation of environment and all these activities, human activities, natural disasters, everything is covered in the jurisprudence I mentioned and that will be annexed to, to, this, uh, to this lecture. But also uh, we have in the jurisprudence of the European Court and Inter-American Court, we have also a sort of procedural dimension of the right to a healthy environment. So procedural dimension, it means that uh, the, the regional bodies uh, do use external instruments, the ARIS Convention or the uh, Escazu Agreement in order to um, recognize uh, procedural environmental rights like um, the right to be informed of any decision that could have a, a, an environmental impact, uh, the right to take part in the decision-making process, and uh, the, ha the right also to have access to judicial protection or judicial guarantees in favor or to apply uh, uh, these uh, procedural um, environmental rights. So it, it's really covered also by the jurisprudence, not only the material aspect of, uh, of the right, but also this uh, Possibility to take part in the, the in the uh, in the decision uh, making uh, uh, process. So there are many many uh, jurisprudence of the uh, of the European Court of Human Rights on the on this procedural aspect, but also of the Inter-American Court of, uh, uh, of of Human Rights. And as I said here, we have the same right. For instance, in the European system and Inter-American system, we have the same right to have access to information, especially in environmental uh, matters, but with a different legal basis. The right to uh, environmental information in the European system is based on right to private life, family life, um, Article 8 of the ECHR, while in the Inter-American uh, system, the right is based on access to uh, the, the right is based to, uh, on uh, uh, freedom of expression and the right to receive information. So, Article 13 of the uh, American um, Convention on Human Rights. 
States' obligations. So what is the jurisprudence on states' obligation? What is the interpretation on states' obligation? So here it's interesting to see that actually uh, when, when it's about states' obligation, we have exactly the same structure than when we talk about other rights protected by uh, international human rights instruments. So it means that we have two types of um, states' obligation. Negative obligation, of course, the states have the obligation not to pollute, not to um, take part in the degradation of environment. Um, but also, we have important positive obligations. And important positive obligations, due diligence, obligation of prevention, obligation of pr protection, uh, obligation of information, and so on and so forth. And one of the most, uh, as I say, dramatic, but also illustrative uh, uh, case uh, in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights of this long list of positive um, obligations is the Honor Yildiz versus Turkey case of 2004. As I said, it, it's a dramatic case because um, it, it's really about the lack of due diligence. And this lack of due diligence has the dramatic consequence on, uh, has had a dramatic consequence on the right to life of uh, uh, a, a group of people living in a certain area where they were uh, obviously uh, risk uh, for their life and public authorities for the European Court of Human Rights, public authorities were informed of these uh, risks for the life of people living in a certain area, but public authorities did not uh, take any preventive measures or did not act uh, with um, with a due diligence. So the, the, the European Court of Human Rights did apply, I would say, uh, it's a classical test in this case of lack of due diligence and uh, dramatic consequences on, um, uh, on, the right, um, uh, on the right to life. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the state's obligations are not that different when it's about uh, protection of environment in relation of rights of the of the ECHR or other treaties than in other um, in other areas. And and again, as I said, uh, we have also this procedural dimension of uh, states' uh, obligation. Um, for instance. Um, obligation of the state to inform uh, the population concerned by a dangerous activity, uh, obligation to uh, assess environmental risks of uh, a public state, uh, a state-owned company or private-owned company, uh, obligation to monitor dangerous activities, and so on and so forth. And yeah, there are some cases in the jurisprudence of the court um, that really are illustrative of this uh, series of uh, states' obligation uh, under um, both the ECHR and uh, the protection of, um, of environment. Uh, when it comes uh, uh, to the standard of review of the um, um, human rights bodies applied in this specific uh, context of uh, relationship between environment and protection of rights, we, I mean, it's, it's not that different from 
other cases uh, dealing with private life, family life, for instance, or other cases dealing with uh, uh, freedom of expression or uh, protection of um, of life. So what I mean is that we the the the, uh, the human rights bodies uh, do apply more or less uh, the same methodology. And I say more or less because actually there are some specificities uh, linked to the pollution litigation or climate change litigation. Uh, let's mention two or three specificities. First, uh, of course, when it's about um, activities, activities that may have a strong uh, pollution impact or climate change impact. It means also that we are talking, before a human rights body, we are talking about activities with a strong economic dimension or that, that may have a strong economic dimension or, and or a strong scientific dimension. And sometimes it's very difficult for human rights bodies, uh, for human rights bodies to address this type of activities or this type of balance of interest, and I'm going to provide an example, uh, with such um, strong scientific or strong economic dimension. One example taken from the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights is, is uh, the Aton and Others versus UK case. It, uh, this case, so it was uh, delivered, uh, it's a judgment that was delivered by the European Court of Human Rights, the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights in 2003, and it was about the activities uh, and, and the consequences of the extension of the activities of, the, uh, of, of an airport in London. And um, the claim made by the applicant was that uh, the extension of activities would have a very dramatic impact on their health, private life, family life. So they raised at least Article 8 of the ECHR, as in Lopez Ostra versus Spain case. Uh, but here, for the European Court of Human Rights, there was a balance of interests to be done. On the one side, protection of individual rights, health, private life, family life. On the other side, protection or legitimate aim uh, of the economic well-being of the country. I'm quoting uh, the ECHR and the jurisprudence of the court. So in this case, the European Court of Human Rights considered that the collective interest, the collective dimension of uh, the extension of the airport was more important than the protection than the protection of uh, individual rights. So in this case, uh, the court considered the European Court considered that the the extension of uh, of the airport was not uh, contrary to uh, Article Eight of the uh, European Convention on the on Human Rights. It's really a case by case assessment. In another case versus Romania, uh, on the other side. Uh, or on the contrary, uh, the, the European Court of Human Rights consider that a, a certain activity with a, a, a less uh, high-profile interest, I would say, and, and only with a local economic interest, uh, could not uh, um, or, or could not be led 
without breaching uh, the rights of the of the European Convention on Human Rights. So in this case, the European Court considered that there was a breach because the balance of interest was not in favor of the local activities, so was more in favor of the protection of individual uh, individual rights. But of course, again, it's really a, a case by case um, uh, assessment, a case by case analysis. But what also uh, has to be uh, underlined is that because uh, here in these cases. Uh, protection of environment and harmful consequences of degradation of environment are linked to Article 8, protection of life, family life, and so um, protection of family life, private life, and uh, integrity of home. Uh, the right is not absolute. The right is relative, precisely because it's linked to a, um, a right, Article 8 of the CHR, that may be subjected to limitations. Of course, when it's about right to life or when it's about uh, integrity of, of people, the regime would be, uh, would be different. So uh, that's one of the specificities of this litigation um, when it's uh, about activities, pollution, climate change. Maybe the other element or, or the other specificities uh, is about evidence. As I said, when we talk about environmental question, when we talk about consequences on health, for instance, there is a, a very important scientific dimension. And there is a very important question of proof. Proof between an, 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 an causation, establishing a causal link between, for instance, an activity and the consequence of, on health or an activity, um, pollution activity, and consequence on um, the situation, the individual or collective situation of persons or uh, of, uh, uh, of, of a group. And sometimes it may be very, very difficult to establish, to, to, to bring some evidence and to establish the causal link between a contested uh, activity and uh, the, the claims before uh, a, a human rights um, a human rights body. Uh, I, I just give. Uh, there are many cases before the European Court of Human Rights where this uh, problem of uh, establishing the link between a claim and um, state's behavior uh, was uh, underlined. But I just give a, a very recent example of this problem of proving. And it's the example of the Billy and Others versus Australia case I um, mentioned uh, earlier. So this case of, uh, uh, of climate change. And one of the claims made by uh, the authors of, of the communication uh, was uh, not only um, about um, the lack of adaptation measures on and the consequence of lack of adaptation measures on the individual rights and collective rights of the communities um, to have their uh, traditions respected and uh, cultural identity, but they also claim the violation of the right to life, Article 6 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And the Human Rights Committee, the majority of the Human Rights Committee, did conclude that there was no violation of Article 6. And there was no violation of Article 6 because uh, the authors uh, did not bring before the Human Rights Committee the proof 
and, and the causal link between uh, their situation, I don't know, health situation or any other aspect in relation with their life, and the behavior, the contested behavior of the state party of uh, Australia. So it's, it's really one of the most difficult um, uh, aspects, I would say, of the litigation process, especially when dealing with a very complex phenomenon as climate change and, and pollution. And uh, I have to say, and that brings me to my conclusion, I have to say that it's also one of the most, um, um, I, I would say, obvious illustration that uh, human rights bodies are not very well equipped uh, to, to address uh, some questions and very complex questions uh, with an important scientific dimension uh, really related to climate change or related to environmental um, protection. So that brings me to my conclusion and I will be uh, very, very brief. Um, my, my, my conclusion that I want, or I would like, of course, to make this conclusion the most uh, constructive uh, uh, as, as possible. But my conclusion would be to, to of course, to, to, to recall that um, there is, at least from the very beginning of the 90s, uh, an obvious um, greening movement of international human rights bodies, of international human rights uh, jurisprudence, and we have... Uh, um, a, an important list of important decisions by regional bodies, by uh, uh, treaty bodies at the universal um, at the universal level, and we have some pending cases and that would be addressed um, next year or in 2024. As I said, dealing with uh, climate change uh, issues, but also. Bad consequences of uh, pollution. So uh, it, it's obvious that is really something uh, that is considered, that is taken seriously by uh, international human rights bodies. So it echoes to what the special rapporteur, the former special rapporteurs on human rights and, and uh, environmental uh, issues, said about the ecological conscious. I mean, there is obviously. I would say, from uh, international human rights bodies, an ecological uh, conscious uh, that is uh, uh, really movement and evolving, uh, and, and, and it's, uh, it's really obvious. And it's also obvious because it's not only in the practice of uh, human rights bodies, but it's also, as I said, uh, discussed uh, um, by um, uh, international organizations and uh, we have this ongoing discussion uh, within the Council of Europe based on the proposal of the Parliamentary Assembly. Now the proposal is before the members of the Committee of Ministers on the adoption or not of a new protocol to the uh, European Convention uh, on Human Rights and this new protocol would be focused on uh, the right to a healthy environment. Uh, but, and, and, and again, I, I would like to, to make this uh, uh, constructive, um, also the, the, the impression uh, taken from uh, all these materials is that actually um, human rights bodies are not very well equipped for different reasons, for procedural reasons, because we have uh, uh, the, the, the claimants, the applicants have to respect uh, some uh, 
uh, admissibility condition, uh, conditions, have to frame uh, their claims uh, to, to fit also with uh, the material scope, the personal scope, the territorial scope of uh, uh, human rights uh, uh, instruments. So um, it's true that it's difficult to go beyond, uh, I would say, certain limit without totally changing uh, the sense and the letter of uh, uh, human rights instruments and human rights condition for litigation. And uh, all these materials for me should be also taken uh, as a call actually, and that was the word uh, more or less used by the Human Rights Committee in Tetiota versus New Zealand, uh, should be used as a call uh, for more actions by states, by international organizations, by different private actors, more actions in favor of robust uh, measures outside international human rights law to tackle the challenges um, of uh, degradation of environment, of uh, climate change for current, but also for future generations. Thank you very much for your attention.